Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, it's not just gas and booze. Why are lettuce prices continuing to remain stubbornly high? Plus, political matters. We check in on local councils as Vancouver debates a bike lane for Broadway and U.S. Minster wants to suspend permit fees for block parties. Plus, Michael Campbell joins us for a federal budget preview and whiteout. With Gwyneth Paltrow's trial continuing, we look into ski hill etiquette. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. First, let's focus on food inflation, uh, specifically lettuce. We learned today lettuce prices are likely to rise next month and could stay high into the summer. Joining us now to talk about the issue is Sylvain Charlebois. He's the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Professor Charlebois, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Let's touch on the first issue of lettuce. What's causing this increase? Well, it boils down to North America's garden which is called California. Mm. Uh, California has been experiencing some some nasty weather of last uh, decade or so, it, and it's just getting worse. Uh, and for, for the last few years, there was just no water, so they had to get water from far, far away, mm-hmm. uh, which led to some nasty recalls as well. Uh, because uh, the water uh, was contaminated, and now they're getting too much water. Uh, they've been getting a lot of water the last six months, and so uh, crops in the uh, Salinas Valley, uh, most of them were damaged or ruined, uh, and that is worth about $300 million. Uh, now, $300 million, that's farm gate. Uh, retail, you're looking at maybe a billion dollars in product hmm. and a lot of it was actually destined for for Canada and so uh, romaine lettuce probably uh, there's uh, iceberg uh, salad as well uh, strawberries were damaged uh, also uh, the other thing is that uh, the crop for the spring hasn't been uh, hasn't started yet so because the soil is just you, they just can't work with the soil so there's lots of damage and and so importers um, uh, in Canada will have to look elsewhere to buy certain products, unfortunately, and those other options are likely more expensive. So the issue of uh, just lettuce for a moment, you were talking of a few other products as well, but in regards to lettuce, this could st- this would be sustained for a long time. It's not something that's going to you know last for two or three weeks. We're talking about an extended period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we are expecting higher food prices, so People, of course, uh, we are going to be uh, heading towards spring in Canada, which is good news. Uh, and, of course, people can grow their own if they want to. Um, and more and more provinces are looking at uh, growing more uh, leafy greens uh, domestically, which is good news. But uh, these projects, these capital-intensive projects, mm-hmm. take time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's, uh, there's a big facility in Calgary being built by McCain, uh, in partnership with Goodleaf, uh, one in Montreal and one in uh, Guelph, Ontario, uh, but uh, it's not happening as quickly as uh, as as we would want to. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're dealing with the issue of inflation, we're seeing overall inflation slowly heading in the right direction, which is downward. But when you look at food prices. You're not seeing that. Uh, I'm just looking at numbers before me when you compare February of 2022 to February of 2023. So year over year, pasta products were up 23%, lettuce 20%, butter 19%, uh, bread 15%, oranges, oranges as you were saying, 15%, eggs 13%. Why are food prices um, staying stubbornly high, or if not increasing significantly, uh, compared to other uh, inflation that we're seeing with other products, where you're seeing a gradual decrease and decline. Well, it's it's it boils down to uh, to the nature of the category itself. It's just unique, and of course, uh, the category food uh, faced a a perfect storm with uh, with weakened supply chains, uh, along with. Uh, 
with climate change impacting many continents basically all at the same time. I mean, if you look at, say, beef right now, Mm -hmm. uh, Brazil is impacted and also the United States. And uh, so we are expecting beef prices to rise within the next six months, not to add more uh, bad news (laughs) to the salad story, but... I mean, it, we're, we we actually have a global market, and of course, the other uh, big uh, event that impacted food prices across globally is is Ukraine. So, but keep in mind, Canada still has one of the lowest food inflation rates within the G7 at 10.4 percent. So it's not it's not that bad compared to other places around the world, but people. You know, when they go to Russia, they don't care what's going on in, in Germany or France or elsewhere. They they certainly realize what's going on uh, with uh, with their budget. Mm-hmm. You raise a very good point. Years ago when I lived in India, you know, you, you talk about, um, you know, staple foods. Rice would be one in, in many parts of Asia. And you're right, in, in Canada, prices go up. It does impact people. But in other parts of the world, uh, developing nations, a significant increase in, in food prices or even staple foods can lead to some sort of political upheaval at time, uh, protests, riots, uh, and we sometimes forget that. Um, but in this case, in regards to Canada, uh, you were talking about some of the perfect storm that California is going through, and you talked about McCain building facilities uh, in Calgary and in Montreal and Guelph are working towards getting those facilities built. I guess this is a wake-up call for us as well that we are relying on, as you say, North America's garden being California. But with climate change, this is a a longer-term existential challenge for us in Canada in regards to building a food system that we can rely on here because we should be able to do as much as possible here. Exactly. Uh, But sometimes uh, when you look at some of our policies, we're not not helping ourselves. Uh, So there are rumors today uh, that uh, perhaps tomorrow um, in the budget, uh, federal budget, uh, there'll be uh, what seems to be called uh, grocery rebates. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- it's a cute name to uh, explain that uh, your GST rebate will be amplified, uh, depending on who you are, but uh, GST rebates will be amplified. I- I'm not entirely convinced it's the best thing to do because when you actually pour uh, an extra two billion dollars in the economy. Guess what happens to inflation? Yeah, it, it goes around. up. Yeah, and so I'm extremely concerned by some of the measures. And many provinces uh, have actually decided to uh, just give out checks because we're politicizing food inflation. Checks are real, but very, very effective fiscal measures can go a long way, but they're not visible. Like, for example, eliminating taxes on food, except if it's served or uh, if there is some processing on site, could be a good idea. We we are taxed quite a bit without seeing uh, it. Companies are taxed as well. And, and so that's, that's making food more expensive. I, I don't know if you heard of shrinkflation, mm-hmm. but because of shrinkflation, some products are too small now to be considered grocery, and now they're taxed because it's a snack. So that's, that, that is real money we're leaving at the grocery store, or we're not getting more food. That's very interesting, and I guess it's also a rethink on exactly what we, how we tax, and some of the stuff that perhaps doesn't, the public attention isn't focused on those areas, but it does hit us on the bottom line. That is so Absolutely. incredibly important. Um, do you see better days ahead, or are we so? Is this something we're gonna have to deal with over the next couple of years still in regards to food and inflation? Well, food prices aren't dropping. So if anybody out there think that uh, food prices will eventually drop. No, there's a new baseline, really, because of wages and uh, and the cost of packaging. There, there are new policies coming uh, and impacting the food industry. So it's not it's food prices are going to drop, but the food inflation rate will eventually drop for sure. I, I think the worst of it is behind us. Uh, we're still looking at a few uh, rocky months, but probably midsummer uh, things are going to get more say normalize if you will it's and, and that's important once once that food inflation rate drops it'll be easier for the food industry to start offering us more deals and that's that's the most important thing well that is wonderful news it's been very tough for canadians i know it's still going to be for a little while but it's good news that uh, certainly soon we'll hopefully see prices exactly. drop uh, professor charlotte as always thank you so much for your time my pleasure bye-bye 
Let's talk about the Broadway plan. We certainly discussed that plan uh, for many, many uh, days on this show and many others here on CKNW. Now, during that debate last June, the previous city, city council endorsed an amendment in support of adding new protected bike lanes along the length of Broadway, timed with the uh, completion, of course, the uh, the SkyTrain Millennium Line Broadway extension under the street. Now the City of Vancouver staff have come back to council strongly recommending against the idea, uh, basically saying there are plans for wider sidewalks for pedestrians and patios along the revamped uh, Broadway. Now last week, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade CEO Bridget Anderson was on this show, uh, and she expressed her concerns about a potential bicycle lane being added along the Broadway corridor. Now take a listen. The Broadway Corridor is the second largest employment centre in British Columbia. So it's an incredibly important area for businesses, but also for residents. Taking away space on the Broadway Corridor doesn't make much sense. We need that avenue open for traffic, both for cars and commercial trucks, for public transit, for emergency vehicles. We also need space for more pedestrian space and more patio space. So it really needs to be a a common sense, balanced approach by council. That was Bridget Anderson from the Vancouver Board of Trade uh, speaking to us uh, last Thursday. Joining me now is Christine Boyle. She's a Vancouver councillor with One City. Uh, Councillor Boyle, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Now, uh, give me your thoughts on this. Uh, You're in support of uh, looking at and wanting a a bike lane uh, along Broadway. Why do you think there should be one there? Look, I I do think that we should have one there. And I agree with Bridget that this is an important conversation about how we most efficiently, uh, most safely move people and goods across the Broadway corridor and within the corridor. She's right, we're adding thousands of new jobs. Um, Many thousands more people will call the area home. And so we need to think about how they're safely getting around. And an active transportation lane on Broadway gets people on bikes, people on scooters, people on other micromobility where they need to go. It's part of creating a destination, a truly great where people can get around safely and local businesses can create good jobs and thrive. And we know that will happen because it's what's happened before um, in other places in Canada, like Toronto on Bloor Street and even here in Vancouver when we've added active transportation lanes downtown. And the, the downtown Vancouver BIA has said they're supportive of them. They, uh, you know, they were initially resistant. They Uh, did the research, they've seen the good impact, and they've been supportive. So lots of good reasons uh, for the safety of residents, as well as for thriving businesses to create these clear spaces for for people uh, walking and rolling and driving each. Now, Brian, Brian Montague, the uh, councillor with the ABC, uh, the majority at council was on this show last week as well. We talked to him a little bit about the bike lane on Broadway. Take a listen to what he had to say. I think there's a, a number of things you have to look at. And uh, you have to give people options on how to get around the city. And uh, that includes everything by bike, walking, transit, car. People use all different modes of, of transportation. And we need to make sure that the Broadway corridor is a place for everybody and accessible to everyone, regardless of how you get around. And, you know, let's be let's be very honest here. If we're going to build a bike lane, why would we do it where we already have one? Uh, and what Mr. Montague was referring to there is that there's a bike lane already on 10th and that we don't need to be, A, replicating what you already have in a quieter street, number one. And number two, staff is recommending uh, that there not be, not be a bicycle lane on on, um, on Broadway. And number three, TransLink, to my understanding, also has a say because it is Broadway and the city wouldn't would have quite quite a bit of difficulty reducing the amount of lanes uh, to less than four uh, if a bike lane was put in. What do you say to those arguments? Yeah, look, I, I appreciate that. Actually, I think Councillor Montague is mostly making my point for me. We need to create good options for uh, for people, and if we want to encourage more people to be not using private cars creating that space is important where he's wrong. And I don't know when the last time um, he rode along 7th or 10th is there, there aren't bike lanes on 7th or 10th. There are bike routes, which, which means their bikes are mixed in with cars. There's a couple blocks where they're protected, but for the most part, you're riding with cars. They're not especially 
safe, especially for people who are more nervous cyclists, the type of people we want to um, encourage to be able to get out of cars because they feel safe and confident doing so. The existing infrastructure is great for recreational cyclists, even for people like me. I've been um, biking my whole life, but uh, but they don't get people to the businesses. They're not useful for scooters, and there's a whole conversation we can so have. So, what about. do you think should give here? Should should we have less lanes, or uh, should sidewalks be smaller so there would be less room for pedestrians, or even uh, sidewalk cafes? Something has to give. Either we reduce lanes from four down to two, which Translink, which has a say in this, probably wouldn't agree with. Number one, yeah. and number two, you reduce the the size of the sidewalk uh, extension. What do you think needs to give if we were to put in bicycle lanes? What what would you want to see? Because you can't do all of it. Totally, totally hear you. Um, I think there is a, a an important balanced solution that would be kind of between the four-lane and two-lane option, so that we would have traffic be able to move smoothly, turning lanes so we're not blocking, uh, blocking vehicle traffic in that way, um, and active transportation that gets, quite frankly, gets those scooters off of the sidewalk where they're a significant risk to pedestrians. And if we don't have the active transportation lane, um, we know they will be on the sidewalks and that will continue to be a risk. So it, uh, in that way, active transportation lanes actually make that sidewalk pedestrian space safer for pedestrians too. So basically you, what you're saying is Broadway should be uh, knocked down to two lanes, but in but with left-hand lane, left-hand turn lanes, so traffic isn't blocked. Essentially, you think that would accommodate what you'd like to see with the bike lane? Yeah, we can get into all the all the details, and I've been diving through all of the pictures and maps. Um, at the station blocks, we're going to need a bit more space, and city staff have mapped out what it would look like to add active transportation space by the stations, which, by the way, is really useful uh, connecting points for people who might, say, use a scooter to get 20 blocks to the subway station and then take the subway the rest of the way. So it would look different at the station blocks than in the in-between blocks. Um, but there is a there is a balanced solution there. And Absolutely. you think tra- bit to each. TransLink would put up, would, would accept that, though, at reducing Broadway down to basically two lanes? Well, again, I'm, I'm saying four lanes at the station blocks um, and then a mix uh, between in the in between blocks that's the conversation we need to have with translink um and we have very uh talented thoughtful staff at the city and at translink who if council gives them the direction i'm certain can figure out that right balance uh, Ms. boyle would love to have you in the studio again it's, it, this is a, a much longer conversation i know you're very busy today and this is before council uh look forward to chatting with you very soon on this issue thank you so much Thanks anytime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Finance Minister Christia Freeland will unveil the 2023 federal budget tomorrow. Uh, Ms. Freeland says that the budget will focus on green technology, health care, and new spending aimed at easing cost of living concerns. She's also said the budget will show fiscal restraint uh, pointing to concerns about inflation and high interest rates. So she will, as she said, uh, spend money, but also be uh, fiscally uh, conservative as well. So it's a very interesting conversation that is going on in Ottawa right now. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the federal budget and this country's finances to a certain degree is Michael Campbell, Global News Business Analyst and host of, of the amazing Money Talks podcast. Michael, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Yeah, it's lots been a, to talk about. Yeah, lots to talk about. First of all, uh, you know, you've uh, follow have followed many a budget federally. What will you be looking for? Well, a couple of things that just a reminder is when governments want you to pay attention to something, they release it early. 
I mean, I'm old enough to remember, obviously, when it was budget secrecy was the top thing, you know, no leaks, no nothing. That mm-hmm. started to change as it became more and more a marketing uh, budget or a marketing document, you know, for the governing party. It didn't matter if it was a conservative budget or a liberal budget. And that's what we're seeing here. I mean, uh, they want us to know there's going to be some sort of grocery rebate program going on. So that's why you've seen that repeated several times. You know, grocery prices may be top of the list of, for everybody in this country right now of concerns. So, again, we hear that a great deal as we come up to the budget. So there won't be a surprise there. Uh, Other things like we will get some sort of boost in green technology. You know, again, they want us to know that. They want the public to, so they release it. Then it will get covered again tomorrow and probably the next couple of days. And then the other one that we've had really for about two months, the big debate over what kind of health care transfers are going to be going extra from the federal government to the province. So all of that we know immediately. Mm-hmm. I think what they don't want to talk so much about is economic growth. Uh, they don't, uh, they've been accused of not having a specific plan for overall economic growth, which means simply, can we attract capital? Can we improve our productivity? I, I had a chance to chat with the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Jabou, uh for Money Talks on the weekend. And I asked him, what's his biggest concern? I mean, he looks at all the government finances, the numbers coming at us, He said the concern is we have not had any emphasis on productivity. I suspect that will continue. Mm -hmm. And it is. I mean, your standard of living is determined by your productivity. Mm -hmm. You know, if we want a higher standard of living for more Canadians, uh, tracking capital is another. Those are a couple of things I don't suspect they will talk about in this budget. It'll be, we've come to just expect what's in it for me in the budget. You Mm -hmm. know, what am I going to get? So the groceries will top that list. Uh, For industry, it'll be if you're in the green industry sector, you know, that will be there. And then sort of on the political front, it will be health care. You know, so I think we know pretty much what's going to be in that budget at this point. Well, let's talk a a little bit about sort of the the issues that we aren't talking about just for a moment here. Uh, One of them is spending. I mean, when you adjust year over year over year spending, federal spending is 24 percent higher than when Justin Trudeau was first elected in 2015. There has to be a fiscal reckoning somewhere. I I mean, we can't continue to spend at this rate. You know, what will be interesting, Jazz, is how it manifests as a fiscal reckoning. And I mean, throughout the world, we're worried about sovereign debt right now. Mm -hmm. We're worried about bank debt, uh, not just in the United States, which became, you know, headline news with Silicon Valley, you know, Republic Bank, the list goes on there, but also obviously in Europe with Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank. This is part of a bigger problem. But the thing will be, how will it manifest to us? I mean, people always ask me, why should I care? And I think we're already living it because the governments across the Western world, and of course, actually in China too, is what's been their response to every problem? You know, let's take it back to the pandemic. What was their response to the pandemic? Well, it was to create money and spend both uh, on the government side, fiscal policy and the monetary policy with, you know, record low interest rates. So then we can flash forward and look at the energy crisis that especially Europe, you know, endured. Well, there's about 700 billion euro fleshed out of there, you know, to help out. Every time we've had a major problem, we've created dollars. Well, that's worried some people. But I'm saying, well, where does that translate? It translates into weaker purchasing power of your currency. And that's the thing that all of us have experienced. We don't buy as much with our dollars as simply put another way of looking at we've got inflation or higher costs. So when I look at this stuff, it worries me, but it's how it's going to translate for the individual. And uh, a a couple of quick points on that. Mm -hmm. I'm very worried about this huge dichotomy between the haves and the have-nots. And the definition of have-not is basically anyone who didn't have assets coming into the pandemic because government policy helped those with assets. My house price went up. Uh, Maybe my business became worth a lot more, you know, as the stock market rose, other assets. But what about the people who don't own that? What about the people who rent? Uh, You know, and of course we all buy groceries, but they're the ones who suffered. And I think that number isn't like some 20% of the population. I look at the polls and I think you got about 50, 55% of the population who are really feeling the crunch right now, who are adjusting their lifestyle because of rising prices. And so you you just have to make a distinction, I think, now. Uh, You know, the old, we're all in this together is baloney. We were never all in it together. I never personally suffered like some people during the pandemic. You know, I had a house to live in. I wasn't in a one-bedroom apartment with two kids wondering where my next paycheck came from. I think that's extended now with these high prices. Some people can afford them. 
and a heck of a lot of people can't. So, so what, would, what would you say to environment? Yeah, and what would you say to those who say, "Look, based on what you've just described to me now, Michael, perhaps government does need to spend a little bit more to help those that are uh, that need that extra help, whether it be uh, a fund that they they've marketed around a grocery rebate uh, or other uh, rebates that are there. That perhaps this is a time that government perhaps not spend like they did two or three years ago, but they still need to spend, and people are okay with a bigger government at this point, uh, and we will need to get to that point where we once again start looking at deficits and debt." Uh, but now is not the time. Well, I, first of all, I think it's a great question because that's what we should be examining, and maybe not in a simplistic way. But for example, something has to change in healthcare. Yeah. Now it doesn't necessarily mean spend more money because we've tried that for twenty-five years. Yeah. And if that means just buying more administrators, that isn't what the public is going to feel. You know, we do have more nurses and doctors. You look at the numbers, it's actually surprising how many more we've added. But something is wrong in that system. You know, we can't get a family doctor. Uh, You know, we know what we've done with waiting lists are the worst in the Western world, those kind of things. So I think the discussion needs to be had for sure. And I'm not sitting there saying you won't have to spend more money, but my goodness gracious, it better be spent in the right areas. And you raise a very good point. In the areas that result with, you know, with individual patients feeling the impact. Because, you know, it's ridiculous to be last when it comes to waiting for elective surgery, last when it comes to uh, so many aspects in terms of a waiting list. And that's what people think healthcare. And as I say, can't get a family doctor either. That's the stuff. I agree. we got to talk about it. It may cost more, but it's got to be spent in the right areas. Yeah. I think when it comes to groceries, sorry, I'm, I'm going, Jazz, you remember me. I just keep going on and on. It's like, it's like a disease. No, I was just, I'm going to jump in before you talk about it. Yeah, no, I just yeah. want to jump in once and I'll let you go on. I, I think you raised a very good point. It's also, as they put more money into the healthcare system, but it's also a system that's got to be open to innovation, right? Totally. Uh, and that's the and problem. it hasn't been. No. And it really hasn't been, whether it's administrative. You look at comparative administrative numbers between us and Germany, and it's ridiculous. We have, like, on a per capita basis, like eight or nine times more administrators. And that's obvious. But my point is this. When you're killing or when uh, 26,000 people in a couple of years are dying waiting for treatment, everybody's got to stand up and say something's wrong here. Mm-hmm. You know, they absolutely have to. And we haven't done that, or a lot of people haven't done that. But, uh, you know, but I go to grocery prices, you know, and we will get that grocery rebate and, you know, maybe some people will cheer. And I'm happy to see that, you know, people who are struggling are going to get, you know, a couple with two children looks like they're going to get about $467 one-time payment. Seniors, 225 although that really has to be means tested. I'm a senior. I don't need the government's help. I want that money to go to someone who really does need help, mm-hmm. as an example. Mm-hmm. Single person, about 234 Again, it depends on their circumstances. But here's the thing. High, what are high grocery prices caused by? Well, there's a whole list. Uh, lack of competition. High gas and diesel prices getting passed along. Interprovincial trade barriers. In, inflation putting wages higher. Uh, manufacturing costs all across the chain higher. Dairy Commission raises prices three times in the last two years, etc. So just paying a couple of two kids four sixty seven once isn't solving those problems. Yeah, and, and gas it, prices going up of, too. Yeah, good good point. And it, a lot of those have the government fingerprints all over them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, interprovincial trades barriers is something we've talked about, and people should understand this. Is you know, this is not some contentious issue in the world of economics. We know those trade barriers are costing us tens of billions of dollars. It would cost nothing other than on a political uh, price, maybe at some point, does not cost economically. It's probably the biggest bang that we can get for our economy without spending a nickel. Yeah. Other than removing the barriers. You, you know, you raise a very good point. Like with all these little things that add up and they, they don't touch those. And like I said, carbon tax goes up on Saturday, 3.3%. 6.3% increase in alcohol as well. And that's built in. They don't have to debate it. They, I think they made yeah. the announcement in 2018, I think it was. And it just goes up automatically every single year. Uh, and to the point where like, if you spend $125 on alcohol now, I think roughly half, just a little bit more goes to tax. And that's not sustainable. Never mind all the other things that impact people's lives in a much more direct way as well. Well, we'll keep a close eye on this. It is uh, it is wonderful that we're helping people. I think that's really important, but there's some long-term structural challenges in this country that we just have not dealt with some of these challenges, and, and they're going to come and haunt us. We're going to have to get to them sooner rather than later. Michael, as always, my friend, thank you so much for your time. Not a, pro- not a problem. Nice to chat with you again. 
The man claiming Gwyneth Paltrow ran into him on a ski slope seven years ago took the stand today after the Hollywood star and lifestyle influencer uh, testified in what is expected to be an eight-day trial. Now, last week, Ms. Paltrow uh, told a Utah jury that Terry Sanderson, who was 76 years old, collided with her from behind on the slope at Deer Valley Resort in Park City, Utah. Mr. Sanderson is a retired optometrist. He initially sued for more than $3 million in damages, but the court later reduced that to $300,000. Ms. Paltrow is countersuing for $1 in attorney's fees. Mr. Sanderson says his life has not been the same since uh, that accident. Um, He said he had uh, broken ribs and a concussion. Uh, Mr. Sanderson basically said that uh, Ms. Paltrow was distracted by her children and hit him from behind, uh, where it left leaving him lying in the snow. Uh, Ms. Paltrow rejects that and says that he skied directly into her back, and that's the issue. Who was actually uh, heading uh, downwards and uh, and actually hit the person? He says it was her. She says it was him. And the interesting part in all of this, this is the bunny run. This wasn't the steep downhill run, but the bunny run. Now, I'm no skier, but I know of a good skier uh, who uh, is a regular on their show, Leah Halives the TV reporter and radio host, and she joins us now. Hi, Leah. Hi, Jazz. How are you? I'm very good. I don't know why I'm fascinated by this case, but I am. <laughs> Maybe it's just because it's Gwyneth Paltrow. But yeah. what do you make of this when you watched? Uh, when you, have you watched any of it? I have. Yeah. yeah. And let's start off for starters. He's an optometrist. Shouldn't he have seen her? Right? <laughs> That's what I thought, first of all. I was like, wait a minute. Okay. I mean, just watching it is fascinating. I know they wanted to have another camera just on Gwyneth so they could show her reaction to everything. But I mean, if you watched this a few days ago when she wasn't testifying, but she was listening to everybody testifying, she was sitting there. She looked so bored, right? Like she's Mm kind of looking all over the place. She's wearing like the Jeffrey Dahmer glasses. I kind of thought, uh oh, you know, you're not doing yourself any justice here. But I mean, it kind of sounds like he got hit. And then he turned around, he saw it was her, and he's like, oh, cha-ching. Like, that's kind of the feeling I get from that. Like, he saw it was Gwyneth. If it was anybody else, like Gwyneth Johnson or something, maybe he wouldn't have sued her, you know? I don't know. To me, it kind of has the air of she's a celebrity, well, so, you know, I want to get some money if I can. Yeah, when he started with a lawsuit of $3 million and now it's downgraded yeah. down to 300000 number yeah. one. Uh, I guess, what? Like, I don't ski. Uh, yeah. I have friends who ski. Like, is there any etiquette in this? I mean, I know accidents do happen, and you're still on a yeah. mountain you're skiing you're going downhill and this was a bunny run we got to remind ourselves of which that. is yeah, i mean you're not going fast so how fast could even if it was her hitting him or him hitting her could you have done any damage i mean i've grown up skiing since mm-hmm. i was five years old i grew up going to cypress whistler black home grouse i've skied every every mountain here we have in bc pretty much in bc even up north and stuff but i like it's an etiquette of you have to be visual you have to pay attention to how you're skiing people around you because like i'm a downhill racer like i love to ski fast but i'm good at it but there's people that aren't so you have to be very careful and watch out for those people because they'll come barreling down and i've almost gotten hit by snowboarders many times and not any fault of my own but they're learning right Mm -hmm. so especially on the bunny hill everybody's pretty much learning if you're taking the bunny hill because it's not very fast so that's my question is how fast was he or she going whoever hit who really you know on a bunny hill to do that kind of damage I think he said he had brain injury too right like I I don't know to me I think as a skier you have to be vigilant you go on that mountain knowing you couldn't hurt yourself or somebody could hurt you you take that risk yeah and you assume if someone was incredibly negligent you know just absolutely Mm -hmm. not caring about the people around them here's a mom with her kids there with her husband she is not yeah. going to be you know i want reckless. to assume reckless and she is yeah. a celebrity on top of that recognizable so people mm-hmm. can see you and in the era of um, cell phone cameras and everything else so i think you may be right it's it, it's a, just a question of somebody trying to look for a quick buck um like when you're skiing is it just a question of hey coming down do you just yell it out or is, is there no you can't really hear when you're skiing yeah. i mean it's you know there's so much going on and when you're skiing all you're hearing is you know the snow or the ice whatever you're skiing on right so Mm -hmm. i mean if you're even if you're going slow if you are really going slow and you're out of control you can try and yell but you know there's a lot of action usually going on in a lot of people you can try even to just fall then you know if you're out of control just lean to the side and fall so before you hit somebody and then also snow plowing you know where you put your two skis together that's how you can slow yourself down when you're a newbie right so Mm -hmm. i mean it's just it's just it's just common sense to me if you're out there and you're out of control 
you know, try and yell or just fall before you hit somebody. So to me, I don't know. The whole thing just kind of is suspicious to me because they're on a bunny hill. How fast were they going? <laughs> know. You know, they couldn't have been going that fast. Well, it's funny because they've, they're going to call uh, Ms. Paltrow's children, Moses and Apple, and yeah. her husband, Brad Felchuk, uh, to, to testify uh, uh, during this trial as well. And I, I don't know if you watched um, Mr. Sanderson's lawyer, uh, oh, Kristen, Van, Kristen Van Orman. Kristen Van Orman. She was yeah, it, it was. It's it, we we put together yeah. a synopsis, a brief synopsis of odd questions oh. that she asked Miss Walter. It was so funny. It was I know. So good. Take a listen. You were wearing goggles, a helmet. Yes. Okay, kind of looked like everybody else on the slope. That's always my intention. Okay. Probably had a better ski outfit though. Yeah. I still have the yeah. same one. <laughs> May I ask how tall you are? I'm just under five. Okay. I am so jealous. I think I'm shrinking, though. You and me both. I have to wear four-inch heels just to make it to 5'5". Five five, well, so. They're very nice. Well, thank you. And you're they're not trained nice. in accident reconstruction. Me? Yeah. No. Neither am I. I was yelling at him. Pretty loud. Pretty was, forceful. I was pretty upset. Right? You're yeah. small but mighty. Yeah. Actually, you're not that small. You're not that small. And I'm assuming... You're under oath here <laughs> that you're a good tipper. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. I wouldn't expect anything less. This case is good. What going... is that? <laughs> I don't. You're you know small what the... but mighty, but you're not that small. You don't say that to a woman. <laughs> I, I just, it just, that whole question answer oh. that we just, that's as America you to your right. Law school, I know. you know, the Acme School of, you know, lawyers. Like, uh, <laughs> oh, oh my God. It's just, it <laughs> was. I just can't help myself. And it's going to go eight days. Only in America do they do all What are they going to do for eight days? What more questions is she going to come up with? Well, you've know? you got to ask the kids <laughs> the questions still and the husband. You know, it's there's just so many. You know, it, the other day I, we, didn't, we didn't include was... When she said, well, I'm counter suing for a dollar. And, a dollar. And, yeah. and then, uh, you know, someone who had done that um, was, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, the Swifties, um, Taylor Swift. Oh, yes. So so there was a follow-up. Uh, do you know Taylor Swift? Are you guys good friends? Uh, you know, are you close? And it's just like, oh, my oh God. Oh, my God. Only I know. A, only. Making like a joke of the court system, honestly. Well, you know, like- it, Exactly. Exactly. Well, it, it. Well, I'm glad that I'm glad we had the chat. So it just be safe, be good, and be courteous. And if you do have an accident, use common sense. Yes, use, use common sense. People. Use your common sense and be courteous. And hopefully, this stuff doesn't end up in court. We're Canadians. I like to believe we don't always do that. So. We'll say sorry, Jazz. We'll we'll bump you and we'll say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll buy you. I'll buy you a beer at the end of the night. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Leah, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Jazz. Tonight, uh, after 6 o'clock, New Westminster Council will be uh, supporting or voting on an amendment to a bylaw this evening that will temporarily suspend the city's street occupancy permit fee in an effort to help New Westminster become the block party capital of British Columbia. Now, the idea comes from New Westminster City Councilor Daniel Fontaine, who joins us now. Daniel, thank you for speaking to us today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Why is it important for... to suspend permit fees? Well, it's important to suspend permit fees for a number of reasons, but primarily what was driving um, the interest from both Councillor Minas and I to bring this forward is we've just gone through a significant pandemic. In fact, we're still in it, but we're on, I, I would say, the, hopefully the tail end of this pandemic. And we thought it was very important to send a message to the community that the city was doing everything we could within our power to encourage people to get back together again. And in particular, when there's an opportunity to do things like neighborhood parties or street parties, uh, we looked at this fee that's there. It's like a $29 permit fee that was there. And, and we both felt that, you know, to remove that and to eliminate that fee would send a very strong message to the community that it's time to gather, it's time to get out and for us to celebrate. And in particularly on a beautiful week like we're having this week with the sunshine, I think the timing is absolutely perfect. Uh, why do you think people are hesitant? Do you think it is just COVID or do you think it's, we've just been so used to cocooning inside and, and sort of not socializing? <laughs> I think, you know, uh, we had, well, a couple of things. We, we never did have a huge pickup on in terms of the, the permitting here in the city of New Westminster. I think we collected the total of 
1500 or $2,000 overall per year in fees. So it's not like we've been overwhelmed with requests in the past, uh, you know, pre-COVID. But with COVID, we definitely have developed um, kind of an aversion to perhaps gathering together. Um, and this is a great way to do it because it is outside. It's out on the street. So even if people are a bit nervous uh, about getting back together, um, we are do- you're doing so in a very safe way outdoors. And I think that's why you know, that's what is really good about this particular initiative in that it reduces and eliminates the fee, encourages people to get together outside and encourages them to once again, you know, improve their mental health and their their social inclusion through being able to gather um, with their friends and neighbours. Do other jurisdictions in the Lower Mainland charge a a small fee to to organise a neighbourhood block party? Yeah, it's my understanding that there is a fee in place in other cities. So I don't think the city of New Westminster is unique in that. But I think, um, you know, I, I think we are somewhat unique in that we're we're reversing the fees now and, and bringing them down to zero. So everybody in the city of New Westminster who wishes to have a street party now can do so if this passes uh, this evening. They'll be able to do so at no charge. And you get one free street party per year and we will still provide uh, those individuals with the appropriate uh, stanchions and other stuff that you need to kind of block off your street. But uh, yeah, other cities that I'm aware do charge. And I must say, Jazz, I, I looked at the amount we collected of, say, $1,500, whatever it was, at the city of New Westminster. And what was also running through my mind is the amount of money it probably cost us to collect those $29 fees um, is probably higher than the $1,500 we're collecting. So it also, I think, makes business sense to eliminate that fee and to encourage people to have a street party and not, you know, nickel and dime people for 29 bucks when they're all they want to do is gather with their neighbors and friends and, and have a gathering. So, so, so hang on for a second. I just want to clarify this. It costs you more as a city to collect those fees and what the city rather than the dollars that are there uh, that you're collecting. Well, I haven't done the analysis, nor have staff, and I'm not, uh, I'm not prone to ask them for that analysis because that report will likely cost us, you know, uh, $10,000, $20,000, $30,000. So I'm not even going there, Chaz, but what I will tell you is I've been in business. I've run my own companies. I've, I've been uh, in the private sector. I, I am fairly confident in saying that the cost associated with collecting the $1,500 fees per year is likely higher than um, $1,500. So I don't think at, at the end of the day, there's going to be any kind of net loss to the city by uh, eliminating these uh, street party fees. Uh, COVID or no COVID, why do you think um, people are sometimes hesitant in throwing block parties? Uh, you don't, you, I know we have them, but it, they're still pretty rare, aren't they? They are pretty rare, and that's, a, that's why our fee collection on it is fairly low. So um, I'm not sure. You know, that's a really good question. I've, we've, I've had some when I lived in a single-family neighborhood. Uh, definitely had them, uh, not a lot, but there were some. But we're also changing. We're moving into a lot more uh, kind of high-density living and townhouses and, and, and condos and high-rises where we don't always know our neighbors. And I think that if we can find a way for, um, you know, streets to kind of be blocked off and encouraging people in these higher-density uh, neighborhoods to get out of their townhouses and their condos and to come out onto the street, I think they'll come. But it's going to take a little bit of time and a little bit of uh, uh, kind of um, support. And that's why if there's any impediment, even having to pay a $29 fee, let's get rid of that. And let's find a way to encourage people to get together because that's how you improve people's mental health. That's how you get um, social inclusion in your neighborhoods is when people get to meet people. And this is a great way to do that. Mm -hmm. And to confirm, uh, you'll be bringing up that motion tonight after six o'clock. It'll be coming up this evening. It, it is actually a bylaw. We brought the motion forward a little while ago. It's now finally come back as a formal bylaw. And if the bylaw is approved tonight, then it will take effect, my understanding. Uh, if not tomorrow, then within the next few weeks. And people who are uh, contacting the city can apply for their permit and they will not be charged anything. And I'm encouraging everybody who's living within the city of New Westminster to reach out to their neighbours and uh, start planning for uh, what will likely be a, a summer of uh, block parties in, uh, in, in the Royal City. Hey, that sounds great. Daniel, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's talk about the family pet. Uh, you know, when you visit any family, uh, pets play such a, a huge role. Uh, in any family in regards to just the love uh, in bringing families together and just uh, just uh, you know 
in helping in regards to the quality of life. Uh, when families separate, of course, it can be quite traumatic. Attorney General Nikki Sharma today says she's int- going to introduce amendments uh, in BC's legis- legislature to clarify the law around pets, property, and pensions for couples and families going through a separation or divorce. She spoke on this issue earlier today. Take a listen. And we know that uh, pets across um, the province are really loved members of the family. And so the, the amendments make it easier for people to come up with their own agreements when it comes to how to divide the family pet time with the family pet, or if they can't, to get an order from a judge to say who's, um, who gets custody of the family pet. That was Nikki Sharma, our province's Attorney General. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Rebecca Breder of the Animal Rights Lawyer and who's been a guest on this show many, many times. Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Um, How important uh, is uh, this announcement? So important. I'm so excited about it. I've been like jumping up and down all day about this because (laughs) it's something that I've been fighting for for a really long time. Um, Like you heard Nikki Sharma say, we would be the first jurisdiction in Canada to actually have legislation dealing with how to deal with pets when a couple separates. Because right now, usually, and at least speaking from my own experience, when when someone comes to me and they're in the process of separating, it's actually not not often in the context of divorce. It's more in the context of, or at least the way I bring these lawsuits, it's it's under small claims because if the only issue is, is to deal with who gets the cat or dog, then small claims has the ability to deal with that because technically animals are property. But what I fight about so often, and, and judges have accepted this, um, is that we need to consider the best interest of the animal in these types of disputes. And what I'm super excited about is that it sounds like the government is going to be listening <laughs> to um, my recommendations that I made in my like nine-page um, submissions that I made to them back in last August, and together with the SPCA endorsed them. Um, another animal organization, RAPS, endorsed them, and the Canadian Bar Association that I'm part of um, endorsed them as well. And it was just really important because it will give clarity on the issue of what happens in these types of situations in the divorce context. So if if someone, sorry, if somebody hires you and there is a divorce, when you're in the context of helping them, uh, one of the factors the judges now must look at, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is the, who can actually afford to take care of the pet, uh, the willingness of the individual to care for the pet, and I, I'm going to assume that the relationship a child may have w- with a pet? Yes. So that's, that's I'm looking at my submissions right now. So some of the, the factors that I outlined are things exactly like you mentioned. So when considering the best interest, it's who does the animal have a bond with and who has, has the bond with the animal and who has the willingness and capability to take care of the animal? Is there any evidence of animal cruelty or abuse? And so it's always not just allegations, but actual evidence of animal abuse. And and there are more factors, and it's always done on a case-by-case basis. And it's what I'm excited about is that if, if I'm right, <laughs> if my prediction is right, and I hope it is, is that these recommendations are actually going to be enshrined in law. And it sounds like they will be, and I'm not the only one. Um, I mean, clients, people in general have been calling on, on recognizing that, that we need more guidance in, in legislation. Because right now it's all based on what judges have said. It's all case law based. So we go by, like when I take these cases on, mm-hmm. I go by my own experience and what I've done in previous cases and what judges have said in other cases. But it would be very helpful to see if there's any guidance because one of the things that we often fight about is, well, should the animal be shared? And and I think that in cases, just like for kids, right, when someone separates, they often don't want to have anything to do with their ex anymore. Yeah. But they have kids together, so they have to co-parent. And so I don't think that it should be any different involving animals. 
and and that is sometimes it actually is in the best interest of the animal to continue having both people in their lives or sometimes it's not because sometimes it's too stressful for the animal to go back and forth so it has to be done on a case-by-case basis but that option should be there and it should be delineated in actual legislation so i'm just super excited because the government is going in the right direction but as we say the devil will be in the details but at the very least it'll be better than what we have now which is nothing. How would you describe the evolution of animal law and where we are beyond today's um, moment? And I, I know it's a big day because I can, I can hear it in your voice. Uh, <laughs> uh, but in regards to, uh, you know, animal law, you know, we, you and I have talked yeah. in the past about uh, recognized animals as sentient beings and some of the legislation yes. in Europe. Uh, where we are, where are we overall? What other things do you think we need that needs to occur in your mind moving forward in regards to recognizing animals and in such an important role they play in our in our lives? Oh, that's such a good question. Where do I start? <laughs> I could say that the way the, I've seen, even just in the last 10 years, in my own cases, mm-hmm. where you could see that judges are grappling with this notion that on the one hand, animals are considered quote-unquote property, but that on the other hand, they need to be considered more than that, more than the chair that you're sitting on, more than the car that you drive, and I've had, I cannot tell you that how many times I want to do the happy dance in court <laughs> when judges agree with me. And it's actually in the written reasons that animals are sentient. They're more than just property. And so you see that evolution. I mean, I've seen it in my own cases, and I think that's only going to grow even more as the importance of animals in society and in our own personal lives is getting the attention that it deserves, like, like you talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and people aren't as shy anymore to say, you know what, I actually love my dog more than some of my family members. <laughs> and, and that's just the truth. Yeah, <laughs> probably. And, and, and the law, a little too honest, but yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people could probably, like listening to this, will probably chuckle and go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could relate to that. Yeah, I, and, I, yeah, I just want to clarify one thing. I think you mentioned this earlier, but uh, this is the first first of its kind in Canada for for a province to to uh, bring in this type of legislation. Yes, yes, legislation. So because up to now, I I can't. It would be wrong of me to say that there's no law because in Canada we have case law and we have legislation. So we do have law when it comes to pet custody issues. But I think when we talk about law in the colloquial sense, I think we mean actual black and white legislation. And that up until now has not existed here in Canada. It does exist elsewhere in the world. Like in the United States, there are a number of states like Alaska, New York, Mm -hmm. a number of other ones that actually have provisions like these that guide people in the court process about what to do with companion animals in the context of divorce. But my, my best guess is that this is going to be a good starting point. And as we litigate these issues, there'll be more, more things that will have to be added into this, this legislation. Because I think one of the issues is, which I'm not hopeful will be in here, is that um, people should have a choice where to bring these disputes, whether it's Supreme Court or small claims. Because right now, it, it's unclear Personally, I take these cases on in small claims if, if we're only dealing with the issue of who gets a dog or cat. But other lawyers have different views that it should be in the Supreme Court because it's a family law matter. And while, fa- while dogs and cats are certainly family, I mean, I'm the first one to say that for sure, uh, it is more efficient, cost-effective and just faster overall to deal with it in the small claims context where you still get a trial. So a judge still hears you still gets to look at the witness's eyes and demeanor in court and assess credibility, but it's less expensive than going to the Supreme court. Rebecca, I hope that the legislation will, will give that guidance too. Absolutely. Rebecca, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much, Jess. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.